Welcome to The Common Rounds, medical education for medical students by medical students. Hi, and welcome to The Common Rounds. In today's conversation, we'll be covering the topic of heart failure. So what is heart failure? Heart failure is thought to be a clinical syndrome stemming from any functional or structural cardiac disorders that impairs the ability of the ventricles to fill with or eject blood. There are a number of terminologies to be familiar with, including forward failure or systolic dysfunction, which is where the heart cannot contract adequately to maintain cardiac output. So the blood backs up in the ventricles and it affects the circulation coming into the chamber. Backward failure or diastolic dysfunction, on the other hand, refers to inadequate filling and therefore the heart can't accommodate blood entering into its chambers. So if the right ventricle is involved, blood backs up into the systemic circulation. You may also come across the term left-sided heart failure, which is when the left ventricles are not pumping blood properly. Right-sided failure is also uh, a common terminology, and that refers to right ventricles not pumping blood adequately either. Before we talk about the pathogenesis and the pathophysiology, let's quickly cover some basic physiology. So the heart has to contract against resistance to push blood out of the ventricles. And this resistance can be considered as afterload. You may also come across a term called preload, and that is simply considered as the pressure exerted by the blood entering the heart chamber. Now, why is this important? Well, because if we go back to our physiology, you may have come across the Frank-Starling law, which is where the stretching of the cardiac myocyte to a certain extent results in an increased force of contraction. So the more blood, and therefore the preload exerted, the more stretch and potential increase in cardiac um, stroke volume, which is how much blood is ejected out of the heart per heartbeat. Now, in response to a large afterload, like any other muscle, the heart can also begin to undergo hypertrophy. This can be a good thing or a bad thing. So if you're an athlete, this may be a good thing because your heart muscles are getting thicker and are able to accommodate your um, physical requirements. But if you have heart failure, this can be problematic. Because according to Lepar's law, as the heart wall thickens and becomes dilated, there's increased wall tension, and therefore more energy needs to be expanded by the heart to overcome this tension so the heart is becoming more efficient as your disease or as the disease progresses. Now, in terms of the physiology, if the heart's experiencing ongoing heart afterload, so in the form of lots of vascular resistance, this can lead to maladaptive hypertrophy, as I've alluded to. So the heart's becoming less efficient and the stroke volume decreases as a consequence. So more blood stays in the chambers and hence the preloading is increased, dilating those ventricles. As more blood backs up due to cardiac inefficiency, for example, in the left ventricle, the blood is either pushed into the pulmonary circulation and eventually into the right ventricles, leading to right ventricular dysfunction. If the right ventricle is predominantly affected, then the blood simply backs up into the systemic circulation, causing venous congestion and systemic fluid overload and in turn organ dysfunction, for example, of the liver. Now let's talk more about left ventricular hypertrophy and some of the common causes. So left ventricular hypertrophy can be caused by hypertension, which is the most common cause, and that's because of that persistently high afterload that the heart has to pump against. There's valvular disease such as aortic stenosis, regurg or mitral regurgitation. There's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a topic for a future episode. Now looking at right ventricular hypertrophy, pulmonary hypertension is a common cause, as with valvular disease, although valvular disease on the right side is less common than the left side of the heart. There's also general cardiac myocyte damage from a previous infarct, dysfunction caused by arrhythmias, and cardiac myopathies, which we'll discuss in a future episode. Keeping on with the theme of pathogenesis, what is the consequence of all this going on in the heart? 
Well, as I've alluded to, there's decreased cardiac output, there's decreased capacity of the heart to meet the oxygen requirements of the body, and so you get end organ dysfunction. There's also maladaptive response that occurs in the long term by activation of the sympathetic pathway in the hope of increasing heart rate to compensate for the reduced stroke volume to keep going up the cardiac output. This over time worsens cardiac remodeling and can cause problems in the future. The reduced cardiac output also means that the kidneys appear to be less perfused which in turn activates the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway, which ultimately results in increasing blood pressure and afterload, which further puts pressure on the heart. And so overall, the increased energy demand of the heart is elevated due to these inefficiencies and enlargement of the heart chambers, and ultimately there's decreased perfusion within the cardiac myocyte leading to ischemia. What are the signs and symptoms of left-sided cardiac failure? Well, you're going to get pulmonary edema and shortness of breath because if the left side's not working, the blood's going to back up in the lungs. These symptoms are worse when the patient's lying flat and improves if they raise themselves up from the bed using pillows. You may also hear bibasal crackles if you examine them with your stethoscope. Patients can produce rust-colored sputum because the blood enters the alveoli space due to high pulmonary pressure. Patients can experience syncope due to reduced cardiac output and there may be peripheral cyanosis as not enough blood and hence oxygen is being pumped in the circulation. From a right-sided point of view, these patients can present with raised JVPs, hepatomegaly, resulting in hepatic dysfunction, and peripheral edema. There are a number of classification systems involved with heart failure as well, and I think the most important one to keep in mind is the New York Heart Association Heart Failure Classification, which divides heart failure into four types. Class 1 is where the patient has no limitations in their physical activity. Class 2, these patients have slight limitations in their physical activity. Class 3, Patients have marked limitations in their physical activity. And class four, the patients are not unable to carry on with any physical activity without discomfort. Now, before we talk about treatment, let's talk about the diagnosis and some potential differential diagnosis to keep in mind. Well, as you can imagine, patients can have respiratory symptoms and some respiratory differentials to keep in mind include asthma or other obstructive airway diseases, restrictive airway disease, as well as pulmonary hypertension and pneumonia may be considered, renal causes, including glomerulonephritis or chronic renal disease, can lead to this fluid overload state as well. And hematological uh, conditions such as uh, anemias, uh, microcytic anemias, can lead to poor oxygenation and hence ischemia and organ dysfunction. There can also be problems with lymphatic circulations, which may contribute to fluid overload state. So these are some of the key things that you need to bear in mind. Now, to investigate our patients with heart failure, we can think about investigations by dividing them into various approaches. So looking at the bloods that you might consider, you might order some biochemistry to look at patients' renal function and electrolytes, looking at full blood count to look at anemia, which can worsen the ischemic state, looking at patients' liver function, because remember these patients can have um, hepatomegaly and liver dysfunction. BMP is another investigation which can help differentiate dyspnea from a heart failure cause versus a pulmonary cause. Now, other easy investigations to perform if a patient presents to ED is performing an ECG to rule out myocardial infarction and arrhythmias. It's cheap, it's non-invasive, and it's very easy to perform in uh, many settings within either hospital or in outpatients. It can also show left ventricular hypertrophy and has a number of characteristic changes to keep in mind. So you can look at the S wave in at least V1 or V2 and add that to the R waves in V5 or V6. If it's greater than 35 millimeters, it may be indicating um, left ventricular hypertrophy or hypertrophy of the heart. From an imaging point of view, you can perform an x-ray, which again is another cheap and quick investigation. And you might find pulmonary fusion, cardiac megaly, uh, and involvement with the cardiac silhouettes 
curly B lines, which are markers of increased interceptal edema, and also rule out other respiratory causes such as pneumonia or respiratory abnormalities. You can also perform an echocardiogram as part of your imaging, and this helps in identifying the potential underlying causes of heart failure, including wall motion abnormalities, which may indicate previous infarct, looking at abnormal hypertrophy, which may indicate an infiltrative process, again covered in a future episode, as well as valvular disease, which can be investigated for stenosis or regurg. Another useful aspect about an echocardiogram is the fact that you can estimate the patient's cardiac function and the affected ventricles by measuring the ejection fraction. Looking at treatment options, there are non-pharmacological management approaches including exercise training in patients with stable chronic heart failure, which results in an 11% reduction in combined all-cause death and hospitalization. Pharmacological therapies for systolic heart failure include the use of ACE inhibitors, which reduce mortality, slow disease progression, and hospitalization rates, and increased doses haven't been shown to improve survival. If patients can't tolerate ACE inhibitors, then you can consider angiotensin receptor blockers. Having said that, combining ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers have been associated with increased incidence of renal dysfunction and hyperkalemia, and therefore should be avoided. Using beta blockers is another important therapy, including metoprolol, carbidolol, and bisoprolol. These slow disease progression and improved survival. It's given to all patients without contraindications such as AV blocks, severe reactive airway disease, or decompensated heart failure. They counteracted deleterious compensatory sympathetic overdrive that I alluded to earlier in my talk. Avoid calcium channel blockers because they've been implicated in heart failure decompensation. Other adjunct therapies to consider include diuretic therapy with the use of loop diuretics, which can reduce the fluid overload state and relieve pulmonary edema. Aldosterone antagonists such as spironolactone or epilinorone can also be considered for patients with New York Heart Association Class 3 and 4 heart failure, and it's been shown to reduce mortality in these patients. Digoxin is predominantly used as symptomatic control, and it's been shown to decrease hospitalization, although it hasn't been shown to improve overall survival. It has an ionotropic effect, so it improves the way the heart contracts, and the for improves cardiac output. Having said that, higher doses, such as those used for atrial fibrillation, have been associated with increased mortality, so high doses should be used with caution. Isosorbide dinitrate and hydralazine can be considered in patients that don't tolerate beta blockers and ACE inhibitors or for African-American patients. More invasive treatment options are also available, such as the use of um, device therapy, including implantable cardioverter defibrillators. These are indicated for New York Heart Association Class 2 and 3, while taking optimal medical therapy and for patients estimated to have a survival of greater than one year. It's considered in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy, 40 days post-MI, or patients with ejection fraction less than 35%, or those with ventricular arrhythmias or cardiac arrest. Biventricular pacemakers are another option, and these are indicated for patients with new heart association class 3 and 4 and whose ejection fraction is less than 35% and who also experience ventricular dyssynchrony. There are other more invasive devices including mechanical circulatory as well as heart transplant as the ultimate treatment option. This brings our presentation to an end. We hope you found the talk useful. We would love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in contact with us, visit our website, see us on YouTube, Facebook or leave a comment on iTunes and radio. It really means a lot to us. Our episode today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our co-editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.